Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the uh, podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Today, we will be discussing uh, with Dr. Uh, Jim Klinger his uh, wonderful paper on the management of acute right ventricular failure in the intensive care unit published in the annals. And uh, we chose this article to highlight because it is such a common problem faced by pulmonary and critical care physicians. In fact, as I think about it, there are very few patients in the intensive care unit who probably do not have pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular uh, dysfunction because many critical illnesses uh, cause this problem, and it's always always a dilemma. So we're very happy to have uh, Dr. Klinger, who is professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Sleep and Critical Care Medicine at Brown University and uh, Rhode Island Hospital. Uh, his co-author was Corey Ventuolo, and we're now going to uh, get into it. So, uh, Jim, my first uh, question is, am I correct in saying that uh, most patients in the ICU will have right ventricular problems? How uh, common is this problem, and uh, what are the kind of patients who are likely to uh, experience right ventricular dysfunction? Well, Alan, thanks for the question. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here and discuss RV failure in the ICU with you and the ATS Annals podcast tonight. I think your question is a good one, and I'm not sure if it's one that we have hard data on. That is to say, if we actually looked at the incidence of right ventricular dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension in the intensive care unit, I'm not sure at this time we could come up with a good number. And part of that stems from the fact that we don't routinely make measurements of RV function and pulmonary hemodynamics in the ICU unless we um, are looking for it. But I think you're right. I think anytime you've got a patient who's got cardiopulmonary disease that's advanced enough to the point where they're in the intensive care unit, and particularly if they're on mechanical ventilation, it's very likely that if you look for some degree of pulmonary hypertension or RV dysfunction, you're going to find it. Now, the question becomes, what's clinically significant, and that's a little more difficult to pin down. Uh, I think, in general, most patients do not have significant RV dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension. And by what I mean by that is that usually most of their respiratory failure or their hemodynamic compromise is caused by either systemic vascular disease or left ventricular failure or pulmonary disease that's uh, causing their primary problems. In the um, not-too-distant uh, past, we used to think of RV failure really only in, in a terms of acute RV failure, and this was seen in incidents where people had massive pulmonary emboli or occasional right ventricular infarct. And in those situations, although they're really quite different physiologically, the obvious finding was that there was something dramatically wrong, and now the RV could not function normally. And unless you fixed what was wrong, essentially removing the clot, or supporting the right ventricle through its infarct, there really wasn't else that you were going to have to do for the patient. What's kind of changed over the last decade or so is that we're beginning to appreciate uh, how important the right ventricle becomes in the presence of pulmonary vascular disease. And of course, there's been a tremendous amount of research and drug development in the area of treating pulmonary vascular diseases. And so now, 
many practitioners are wondering whether or not when you have a patient in the intensive care unit, you ought to consider measuring or assessing RV function and pulmonary vascular afterload and treating it to try to improve the overall situation of the patient. And so those patients break down as being something that we see a little bit more commonly, and I think probably the more common ones are people that have chronic lung disease, such as COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, who then get an additional hit, such as a pneumonia or some acute exacerbation that causes them to be in severe respiratory distress, oftentimes very hypoxic, sometimes in need of mechanical ventilation, and there, their right ventricular demands will increase, and they can actually start to develop degrees of RV dysfunction. The other thing that's becoming more common are these population of patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension, or what we used to call primary pulmonary hypertension, who have been treated and are in some stage of their treatment getting along fairly stable clinically and then get sick from more common diseases like pneumonia or sepsis, and now they end up in the ICU with a baseline of severe pulmonary vascular disease, and now they have a new critical care illness. So the question has arisen, do we manage these patients differently than we do uh, our regular patients? So there's really kind of a a large uh, base of right ventricular dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension in the ICU, and it becomes important, I think, to start off by trying to figure out what the actual etiology of the RV failure is. I think this is a a good segue into uh, the issue of how do we approach making the diagnosis. I know you, you know, in in your paper you talk about the physical findings. Uh, When do we, when is physical exam enough? When should we uh, do echo or sonography? I mean, many uh, institutions that is a standard and pretty much done in everyone. And you do touch on the role of the pulmonary artery catheter, which has shown a, a dramatic decrease in, in use. And what, what are the situations where you would put in a pulmonary artery catheter? Well, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the ways that I approach this sometimes is by going the following way. What would you think if I were to say to you that you have a patient who's critically ill, who's coming to your unit, and I want you to take care of the patient, but you won't be able to measure the patient's blood pressure. What would you do to assess whether or not the patient was having appropriate perfusion, right? And you could say, well, in the absence of a blood pressure, we could look at kidney output, or we could look at liver function, or we could look at facial flushing, or we could look at some other signs of end organ perfusion. And then if I asked you to do that in the lung, that is to say, how would you tell whether or not you had adequate blood flow through the lung I think you'd realize very, very rapidly we have almost no idea what's going on in the pulmonary circulation for the majority of patients that we manage in the ICU. And unfortunately, there is not a good physical tool, meaning a physical exam tool that can be used, right? So we can't measure the blood pressure with a blood pressure cuff. We can auscultate the heart and try to determine whether or not the heart sounds are slightly more pronounced for the right ventricle than the left ventricle, but that's a really inaccurate way of assessing how much RV failure we have going on. We can't tell by listening to the lungs whether the right ventricle is under stress or not. So almost immediately, if you want to raise the question of is there a pulmonary vascular problem or is there a right ventricular problem, you have to go with some degree of diagnostic testing. And the thing that, of course, has helped us here the most has been the echocardiogram because it's normally available, it's rapid, it's non-invasive, 
But you have to ask that first question, and that first question is, how do I know that the right ventricle is okay? We run into this problem fairly frequently. That is to say, we get patients in the intensive care unit who are admitted and who do have signs of hemodynamic compromise, who are hypotensive, who are not well perfusing, and the team goes through their differential diagnosis, and they do quite a bit of tests, but they don't actually do anything to formally assess either left ventricular function or right ventricular function. Unless you can pick up the clues of cardiogenic shock on physical exam, you may not know how severe the compromise is. So by doing a, a simple echo is usually the best place to start. In the old days, we used to have to call the echocardiogram lab and have one of their specialized technicians come up with the machinery in order to get an echocardiogram. And then sometimes you'd have to wait overnight for somebody to read it and give you the information that you need. But more and more frequently now in the ICU, we're seeing our fellows, our junior staff, and a lot of the physicians simply use a bedside ultrasound machine, the same machine that's used for assessment of veins, for putting in central lines, to get what we call a quick look at the right ventricle and the left ventricle. And if you have moderately normal-sized ventricles and both of them seem to be contracting, you can at least say to yourself, you've got a heart that seems to be functioning. When you see the left ventricle down, of course, we know what to do. And if you see a blown or very enlarged right ventricle that's not contracting, that's probably the first time we start to consider RV failure in pulmonary vascular disease as, as contributing to the hemodynamic compromise of pulmonary hypertension or as, as the hemodynamic compromise in the critical, uh, critically ill patient. If it's not possible to tell uh, on the echocardiogram or if having found uh, RV dysfunction on the echocardiogram, we need more information, then I think the next thing that gives us the best clue is measurement of uh, central venous pressure uh, because this is so critical to right ventricular function, knowing what the right ventricular preload is. And then if we can't get enough from RV function by echo, and preload by uh, central venous lines, then, of course, the last step is to go ahead and float a Swan-Gans catheter. Just touching on the last point, you know, probably the mid-1990s, there was a fair amount of data suggesting that you couldn't improve the outcome of critical care people by placing a Swan-Gans catheter. And although I think data have supported this, we have not been able to figure out why it is that the Swan-Gans catheter doesn't make a difference. And a lot of concern has been raised about the possibility that even though the Swan-Gans catheter wasn't helpful, that maybe the problem was the numbers that were obtained by the Swan-Gans catheter either were not interpreted correctly or were not responded to in the right uh, fashion. And, of course, the great, great majority of these cases were all people that had systemic hypertension from sepsis or LV failure or ARDS. Whether or not the Swan-Gans catheter can help the management of right ventricular dysfunction or pulmonary hypertension in the ICU really has not been looked at. There was an interesting paper published by Todd Bull out of the University of Colorado several years ago going back looking at the ARDSnet trials uh, and was able to show that in patients who did have a Swan-Gans catheter in, if they had pulmonary hypertension in the presence of their ARDS, they did worse than if they didn't. And, of course, that may simply be a marker of the severity of the ARDS, but I think that group is starting to hit on some, that there are people who have ARDS alone, and there are people that have ARDS in the presence of pulmonary vascular disease. And perhaps if we can differentiate the two and treat those with pulmonary hypertension and acute respiratory distress syndrome for both RV dysfunction and lung disease, they might be better off. So that's kind of the gamut. So we, we tell people to assess uh, vital signs in general, to look at whether or not they think there is adequate systemic perfusion in those cases where patients 
seem to have a cardiogenic shock or a maldistributive shock, then we usually recommend assessment of right ventricular function on echocardiogram. And if the RV is not happy, then we ask them to look at right-sided filling pressures through central venous pressures. And if we can't tell what's going on then, then we'll talk about a Swan-Gantz catheter. The thing that's a little bit different on that last point with the catheter is that, you know, in the old days, we used to float a swan in the ICU and then leave it in place. And uh, we do that less and less often nowadays. But when we're ever confused about, or I should say, whenever we're confused about whether or not the right ventricle is happy, whether or not there's significant pulmonary vascular disease, what we do more frequently now is we simply take the patient from the ICU to the catheterization lab, do a right heart catheterization, obtain the hemodynamic measurements that we need, and then frequently we'll remove the right heart catheter and bring the patient back to the ICU. I think this was very helpful to me, but you know I'm going to go back to one of the real strengths of your uh, paper, and that's your approach to management of RV failure and dysfunction. And you know, I, I really wanted to hear how you approach management when we might want to intervene specifically to deal with the pulmonary hypertension. And I thought your uh, pathophysiologic framework was very useful, and maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit about that. Sure. Alan, you know, the, the primary point that I think is really most helpful is trying to unfold the circulation and lay it out in a diagram. These are the diagrams that are able to allow the viewer to understand that the circulation we have is a double circulation that's set up in series, so we have two pumps and two resistance beds. And of course, the first one is the right ventricle followed by the resistance of the pulmonary circulation. And then the blood flow draining from the pulmonary circulation ends up in the left ventricle, and of course there is circulated through the rest of the body. And what's so different, of course, is that the systemic circulation has a lot of different ways that it can circulate blood. So you can infarct your bowel, you can thrombose your kidneys, you can do all kinds of damage to your peripheral organs, and the blood can still be rerouted around those damaged areas and make its way to the rest of the circulation and then eventually back to the right side and the lungs and then back to the left heart again. If you have Diffuse obstruction to blood flow in the pulmonary circulation, though, you're really stuck, and that is all the blood has to go through the lungs by one way or another before it can get to the left ventricle. And so in this way, the lungs act not only as an organ that is important for gas exchange, but really as a very broad-based filter. So we frequently talk about the lungs as being like the gas filter in the car. And if it's damaged or clogged or for whatever reason the blood can't get through, You might be able to idle okay, but you can't uh, accelerate or you can't maintain high cardiac output, which is so critical in most critical care illnesses. So if you approach it from that standpoint, it would make a lot of sense that the first thing you have to do is get the blood flow through the lung. Normally, there's enough pulmonary vasculature that that isn't a problem, and so you can do it with a relatively low-pressure pump, which is what the right ventricle is, and even under duress where you need to increase cardiac output by a sizable amount, the right ventricle can normally compensate. In pulmonary vascular disease, of course, that starts to shift. Uh, And as it shifts, and what I mean by that is as the job of the right ventricle becomes harder to increase blood flow through the lungs, you run into what is commonly referred to as kind of a double whammy for the right ventricle. And it kind of goes like this. The less blood it can get through the lungs, the more uh, blood is needed by the left ventricle to maintain cardiac output, or I should say the the less blood that the left ventricle gets, the more demands on the systemic circulation are put into play because there isn't enough blood to maintain perfusion. 
And as a result, the left heart starts to beat faster to compromise, and so its filling pressure goes down, and now the uh, pressure on the right ventricle simply becomes greater. As the RV starts to enlarge, it starts to crowd out the left ventricle because the unique thing about the circulation is although these are separate circulations, the two pumps, of course, are right next to each other and they share this intraventricular septum. In the acute RV failure situation when you have something like a right ventricular infarct, the only problem is contractility. So by filling the right ventricle with a large volume, you can actually increase or maintain cardiac output in the face of decreased RV contractility. But as soon as you put an increase in right ventricular afterload, you run into a different problem. And that is, as you increase return to the right side of the heart, any volume that it can't pump through the lungs to the left ventricle stays in the right ventricle and starts to encroach upon the left ventricle. And now you decrease left ventricular compliance and left ventricular filling, and you can reduce cardiac output even more. This has been shown to a fairly good degree in, in a situation that may not be entirely useful clinically, but in an isolated lung preparation, if you take the, the heart out and you simply clamp the uh, outflow track and you start to increase uh, volume loading, you will see that you can actually overstretch the right ventricle and squash the left ventricle and actually decrease cardiac output. This is one of the few clinical situations where adding volume will actually, has the potential to actually decrease cardiac output. Um, and taking off volume can actually increase cardiac output. At the same time, you can't take off too much volume because a right ventricle under duress needs a slightly higher filling volume than normal to maintain contractility. So you kind of quickly get into a situation where you have to be cognizant of both the, the preload of the right ventricle as well as the afterload. And then you have to be able to have some way to determine whether or not your manipulations of the right ventricle are resulting in improved cardiac output. And that can either be by swan scans catheter or simply monitoring systemic blood pressure and, and heart rate, which are the other two things that, that help quite a bit. So that's what makes the, uh, the right ventricle kind of unique and the physiology kind of unique here. And I think it's also kind of challenging because, as we mentioned before, it's hard to take a look at the, the right ventricle on a beat-to-beat -beat basis unless you've got some type of uh, monitoring going in. As far as approach to therapy, the thing that we try to do is to immediately reverse any type of reversible increase in right ventricular afterload. And for most patients, this is simply hypoxia. Now, we're all familiar with alveolar hypoxia. That, of course, is the, you know, the, the FiO2 that we have going in. If there's an alveolus that has a low FiO2, the blood vessels serving that alveolus will tend to constrict, and that can raise pulmonary vascular resistance. But there's also a fair amount of pulmonary vasoconstriction that's caused by the pH or, or the, the oxygen tension of the pulmonary arterial blood. This is essentially the oxygen saturation of the mixed venous blood, and that's a little harder measure. Nowadays, when there are invasive catheters in the patient, such as a uh, central venous line, uh, sometimes these pick lines, which will have uh, a distal tip that lies in the right atrium, you can get a pretty good idea of the O2 tension of blood returning to the right heart. And if it's low, that, of course, can increase pulmonary vasoconstriction and elevate your right ventricular afterload. So we think in situations of RV failure and uh, pulmonary vascular disease, it's very important to try to normalize not only alveolar oxygen concentration, but superior venous O2 concentration. So we like to see those SVO2 sats at least above 70% if at all possible. 
And the second thing that plays a role is the acidemia, because again, uh, acidemia will potentiate most hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction responses. So if you have a patient who's mildly hypoxic but has a normal pH, they'll have a mild degree of pulmonary vasoconstriction. But if they have both hypoxemia and acidemia, they can have a rather intense hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. So we try to avoid uh, those situations. This can sometimes be at odds with the rest, you know, of the mechanical ventilation. If you have a patient with uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, frequently people like to use low tidal volumes. We sometimes run borderline uh, PO2s to minimize the amount of PEEP in the, in the FiO2 concentration. And in hypoventilating, the patients can frequently have an acute respiratory acidosis. So in those situations, if you have evidence of pulmonary hypertension, particularly RV failure, you may want to at least try to reduce the degree of hypoxemia and acidemia that you have to see if you can get a better uh, assessment of cardiac output. There's also been some interest in lung volumes. We know that as we get away from normal lung volume, meaning either lung volumes that are very low or lung volumes that are very high, in the normal lung, that will increase pulmonary vascular resistance to a relatively modest degree, and to what degree that plays any role in the critically ill patient, we're not sure. But when at all possible, we like to try to return those lung volumes to normal. I think nowadays when you're talking about protected lung volume strategies, it's unusual to have people that are being ventilated with very high lung volumes. But if you have a collapsed lung from pulmonary edema or diffuse pneumonia or even ARDS, you can get increase in pulmonary vascular resistance as well. So sometimes opening that up a little bit uh, with PEEP can help unload the right ventricle as well. Once we're done trying to manage reversible causes like acidemia, hypoxemia, and low lung volumes, then the focus really shifts towards is there anything that we can do to acutely decrease pulmonary arterial pressure. And once upon a time that was quite difficult uh, because most of the pulmonary vasodilators were also very strong systemic vasodilators and so they usually caused more systemic uh, hypotension than they did uh, relief uh, uh, increase in pulmonary arterial pressure. But nowadays, there's a handful of fairly specific pulmonary vasodilators that we think can be helpful in the ICU. Uh, the ones that are best are those that are most selective for the lung and have the shortest half-life. And so we think of things like inhaled nitric oxide. Uh, and more commonly now, a lot of people are using continuous inhalation of nebulized epiprosinol. Both these drugs work fairly well at reversing any active pulmonary vasoconstriction and reducing pulmonary vascular resistance. When you have fixed pulmonary vascular remodeling, like patients with end-stage lung disease or end-stage um, pulmonary arterial hypertension, the effect is often uh, mitigated. But uh, in patients that have any degree of active vasoconstriction, these drugs could be quite helpful. There are, of course, a large number of drugs that are used to treat patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Most of them are not going to be helpful in the critically ill patient because they simply take too long to work and because they simply are too difficult to reverse if you go too far and cause systemic hypertension. So uh, sometimes we'll use inhaled prostacyclines. Uh, most often we use inhaled nitric oxide. In some cases we also use intravenous epiprostanol because it tends to be a, a very good pulmonary vasodilator and the only thing we have to watch out there is for some degree of venous admixture that can make hypoxia worse and it also of course has the potential of causing systemic hypertension if the uh, doses get to be too high. So that's kind of the overall approach in a nutshell to relieving pulmonary vascular resistance or increases in pulmonary vascular resistance. The last piece of that puzzle is once everything's been done, then we start to shift towards uh, RV performance. And if you can't get the right ventricle to improve its performance, 
by correcting reversible causes of pulmonary hypertension, such as hypoxia and acidemia, and you can't get it to improve better by using pulmonary vasodilators. And the last thing we move towards is drugs that actually try to stimulate either myocardial perfusion or myocardial contractility. And that's kind of an interesting area. You know, one thing that can happen with these patients, if their pulmonary arterial pressure is quite high, you can actually get to a situation as the PA pressure approaches systemic pressure that it's possible that the PA pressure can be as high or higher than systemic pressure. And there you get into an interesting situation because the perfusion of the right ventricle is dependent on coronary arterial pressure. And if the right ventricular systolic pressure starts to exceed coronary perfusion pressure or coronary arterial pressure, which is essentially systemic arterial pressure, you can actually get in a situation where the right ventricle loses coronary arterial perfusion during systole. And we try to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. So if we're aware that the RV systolic pressure is in the 80s or 90s, we'd like to keep systemic pressure, that is to say arterial pressure, at least uh, 10 to or higher, so in the 90s to 100s. And sometimes that can be very helpful if you have a patient that has RV failure and pulmonary hypertension who is starting to uh, do poorly in the ICU, not perfusing, not getting renal perfusion, making urine and whatnot. If you simply put on a small dose of pressure to increase their systemic arterial pressure, you can improve coronary perfusion to the right ventricle and thereby facilitate uh, right ventricular contractility. And after that, if that still fails, then there are attempts that are made to try to increase contractility by using ionotropic agents, uh, such as dibutamine or milnarone. These agents have all been tried. Uh, different practitioners have their favorites. There, there certainly aren't any data to tell us that one is uh, better than the other. But what we normally do is kind of experiment with different doses of the anotropes with the idea of being trying to maintain systemic pressure without increasing pulmonary arterial pressure and trying to increase uh, cardiac contractility at the, at the same time. And then finally, if all else fails, you know, the thing that's really kind of become more and more popular now in the ICUs in the last three years in particular has been the use of, of machines to support right ventricular function, and I'm referring to various modes of extracorporeal membrane support. And for patients that have reversible causes, these could be lifesavers. That is to say, sometimes you can almost completely unload the right ventricle by diverting blood flow from the pulmonary venous side, or I should say the systemic venous side, the, the pulmonary artery, uh, out to the systemic artery. Let me stop there, Alan, and see if you have any questions about therapy before we go into that last area of, of ECMO. Uh, no, I think you've covered the ground. Where do you think it's reasonable to employ uh, specific pulmonary vasodilators? Is it reasonable to use it in an ARDS patient, in an, a pneumonia patient, in COPD? Is there ever a situation where you would consider doing that? The time to consider these agents are when, like I say, we have, you've convinced yourself that you've got a patient who's developing cardiogenic shock despite having a healthy left ventricle, and on echocardiogram, it's apparent that this is due to right ventricular failure in the presence of a high right ventricular afterload or elevated PA pressure. In those situations, I think it's worth giving a trial of inhaled pulmonary vasodilators to see if you can simply increase cardiac output. And we have seen this happen. In general, if you have a healthy pulmonary circulation and a healthy right ventricle, even severe pneumonia and ARDS won't increase your PA pressure to the point where you start to see RV failure. But in people that have underlying pulmonary vascular disease who then get a superimposed lung infection or a critical illness 
you can see a rise in right ventricular pressures to the point where the RV starts to fail and cardiac output comes down. And if you can mitigate that by uh, inhaled or intravenous pulmonary vasodilators, uh, it can make a difference in improving cardiac output. So those are the people we're most interested in. We don't routinely use these drugs for, you know, people who come in and have PA pressures in the 50s or 60s and have uh, mild or moderate enlargements in RV function, nor do we use them in people that have prever uh, preserved uh, cardiac output as assessed either by thermodilution or FIC measurements of their cardiac output in the ICU. But it's really those people who are developing cardiogenic shock in the presence of significantly elevated uh, PA pressures and evidence of severe RV dysfunction. Well, I think we got a, a lot to think about this evening, and I once again would thank Dr. Klinger for his discussion, and we look forward to the article in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Have a great evening. Uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine for the Annals, hoping that we all use this information to the benefit of our patients.